Okay. It's been a while. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's been a while because uh, we are both busy people. We are, well, I mean, self-inflicted. <laughs> self-inflicted, for sure. For sure. Um, I actually had to ask for my part-time job to scale back my responsibilities because it's craziness. Like, working full-time Monday to Friday and then evenings, two days a week, and then yep. Saturdays, the full day is is madness. We are no longer in our 20s, put it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, I mean, put it, I, I used to be able to pull all-nighters fairly regularly, you know, work until 9pm and then have dinner, then go back to work again until like 2am. And now I just find, okay, look, 9pm is, you know, or even like 7pm is my cutoff. Stop, go home and rest. Yeah. And it, like, it's a real thing. <laughs> like, yeah. the, it's not appealing anymore, right? Right. Yeah. Like, it used or at least to the, be... The, the payback your body exerts on you is... is... Yeah. Is huge. Yes. Yeah. That might be a better way to put it, actually. Mm. Because, I mean, I, I still like the idea of working undisturbed through the night, but you can no longer yes. function the following day, and then it's... That's right. I enjoy working through the night because, yeah, there's literally nothing there to disturb you. Yeah. Right. And, but, I yeah, mean, you know. even if you are in a... In a I mean, because it's Singapore, right? And working overnight at airport is a mm. thing yep <laughs> um it's kind of weird but it is a thing it is a thing uh, right yeah but even in the environment where you are in what is effectively a fully functioning city overnight mm-hmm. um just the amount of traffic is so much lower than normal yeah there is a i guess i guess part of the Part of what helps is the fact that it's so surreal. It's a nice contrast to whatever you're doing during the day that it actually helps you to be more productive in a, in a strange... But of um, course, you know, yeah. this only happens in... Well, this... I mean, Singapore is one of the very few places in the world where this can happen because we don't have this phenomenon of drunk people and basically the crazies coming out at night. Uh, yeah, that is true. Which is uh, New Mexico, which is what I see in Albuquerque a lot, right? At night, yeah. it's the worst time to go out or yeah. to be working outside because that's really when things get hairy. Yeah, definitely. And um, even in a, it doesn't have to be a particularly large city for this to happen. Like in no yeah. in in Freiburg, for example, you don't want to be out too late because, mm-hmm. firstly. It is small enough that there's literally nothing. <laughs> um, there's nothing to do like past like 10 p.m. But also, yeah, it's 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 tr- it's true that the only people who are really out in the streets at that time, um, it's either been a weird day for them, or mm-hmm. they're out there every night, and you don't really want to be. In that position. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to be encroaching on their space in, yeah. in, uh, on the one hand, right? These are yeah. rough sleepers. These are people who yeah. are in particular circumstances that, that, you know, make it difficult for them to get by anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. But that's oh, it. Well. I mean, now that I have my, my kind of 
workstation setup, I'm I'm very disinclined mm-hmm. to do any work outside of it. <laughs> it's it's just it's so much nicer to work with a big monitor with a dedicated mechanical keyboard, nice big mouse pad. It's kind of like why would I just bring out my laptop and be reduced to like a laptop screen and a travel mouse sitting in a cafe where you might be kicked out at any moment. Right. It's just not the it's just not as not as productive. See, I've never I've never learned to work like that because you know I don't have a big screen. Or mm-hmm. I have a small TV on my on the side of my desk, but you know connecting to it is a pain. Uh-huh. And um, most of my stuff is computational, bioinformatics stuff. So what I need actually more than ever more it's than anything power. else is, is power and a stable internet connection. If I'm running stuff on you know remote, yeah, uh, on my I'm, server. I am curious about um, computational. Okay. So here's the thing. I've been doing these, um, what they call katas on Cold Wars. Yes. Are you familiar with Cold Wars? Yes. You think we talked about it in the, like three episodes ago or something. Uh, really? Okay. I, I have no recollection of this. <laughs> so um, Cold Wars is, for context, right? It's mm-hmm. the, it's one of many websites where you can... Um, Okay, I, I don't even know how to describe this because now it feels it feels like such a obvious concept, but I realize that... I mean, it basically just modularizes your training into specific uh, achievement bands, right? Not, not exactly. So the way that it's really set up is that anybody can submit a problem, mm. right? Oh, yeah. Um, it's, like, it's like you can submit like coding problems. Mm. Then people um, look at it, they refine it, they upvote it or downvote it or, or whatever, and it goes through like uh, you know beta testing, and then eventually yeah. when it's published properly, the um, the the question is is what's known as a kata, which is it's like a a thing that you train on, like a pattern that you train on, mm-hmm. right? And yep. you select the language that you want to practice and like the level of question that you want to practice. And then you get a question, a problem, right? And you are required to write code that will solve that problem. And there are tests to test your solution against. So I've been doing plenty of these because uh, at my traineeship, right? They try and start or end the day with a, with a JavaScript kata. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I am so they have this ranking system that's taken from the martial arts, right? Because the idea of a kata is taken yes. from the martial arts anyway. Yeah. And so it goes from eight Q, which is the most beginner level, up to one Q, and then one done. Okay. Um, I don't think they have any more like ranks beyond that right now. I think there is a plan to you know expand the done ranks, but right now it's just like Q and then one done. Uh, I'm assuming right. it's pronounced one done and, you know, uh, and not like, yeah, and not something else. <laughs> so right now I'm at 4Q overall, uh, which is pretty decent, right? Yeah. But what I found was that when you leave about, you know, like 8Q is very basic um, learning the standard library kind of stuff. 7Q mm-hmm. is more about control flow, language features, and then 6Q, you start to get into performing um, 
some basic algorithms effectively. Right. When right. you get to 5Q, I, I actually think 5Q is is a decent enough level for most software developers because very rarely will the problems that you are trying to solve be more than a 5Q in difficulty, in my opinion, based on what I've seen on Code Wars at least. Um, okay. And I've also noticed this because um, the instructors at my boot camp, right? Like, I know their Code Wars ranks. Um, <laughs> they are about a 5Q. And that just tells me that, you know, in terms of how useful the training was, it got up to that point, And then beyond that, it was diminishing returns as far as, like, usefulness for work, right? Or usefulness right. Yeah, for, yeah. for learning. For application. Yeah. yeah. Um, from 4Q and up, you start getting into very, very, um, I don't want to say like computer science-y problems. You get into things like language features, right? Things that you almost okay. never do, but that the language that you're working on is capable of doing. And so one example right. of this is, <laughs> I sent this kata, this was actually 5Q, but but uh, I think it's 5Q, but uh, it was in a sense terrible for everybody involved so it is um i can't remember how it how it is actually it's fairly simple but it was like um sum up all the integers in an array which okay. you know is something like that which you can do like trivially right oh no 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 yes is it hmm. um it was something along those lines, basically. Okay. But it had a character limit. <laughs> okay? Okay. And so if you do it the way that you would normally do it, right. which is to use a reduce function, right? Yes. It's too long. <laughs> um, yep. Yep. Okay. And the way this... to do it in JavaScript yes. is you take the array and you join it into a string. And then you eval the string. Okay. Huh. And the reason that this works, you join it into a string using the separator plus. The reason ah. that this saves characters is that JavaScript actually allows you to... You, I mean, in a lot of languages, in JavaScript, in Python, um, to execute a function, you must put parentheses, right? Yes. Okay, and then when you put a parentheses, then inside, and, and you're passing an argument, a string is an argument, you need yes. the quotes inside the parentheses, right? Yes. Okay. JavaScript allows you to pass a string as an argument using um, a template literal, which is JavaScript's fancy term for what in Python are called f-strings. I don't know if that's helpful to you, but yeah. 
Not you, really, but okay. I, I, yeah, my my knowledge of programming isn't that that sufficient right. advanced. But so a know, template, enough, I, I get get the what the general gist of it. Yeah, so a oh, template editorial is is basically when you have a a string that um has generally you use it when you're trying to interpolate one string inside another, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like you have like um you know the um if if you have a, something like you know John has a score of. 1,000, right? right? Normally, in reality, what you are going to end up with is user has a score of score, right? In, and yes. user and score are variables. And yes. usually, in most languages, you can either concatenate them. So you put like user plus has a score of plus mm-hmm. score. But mm-hmm. this is very finicky for a lot of reasons because it's a very unnatural thing to type spaces to concatenate right. spaces, oh. right? Yeah. And it's not well, very I mean, readable. I, I, you get used to it in Python, but yeah, fair enough. That's what F strings are for. So F strings are oh. um, formatted strings. And okay. you type an F in front of the, of the string, yeah. right? And then inside that string, you can just use curly braces to indicate where you want to interpolate a variable in. Yes, I've, or an expression I've seen that used before as well in code, in Python right? code, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's what it's for. So in JavaScript, mm. the equivalent is a template literal. And okay. you denote a template literal using backticks, which are, so you, a start backtick and an end backtick, that's two characters, mm-hmm. right? And um, a template literal is effectively a formatted string. It can just be a string, or you can put, right. you can interpolate stuff inside. So, what you do is you do you take the array and you join it, and then you pass in the template literal plus as an argument, and this is a yeah. very okay. unique feature. I don't think any I don't know of any other language that lets you do this because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, I've never it heard of any. Really, doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. in practice, almost nobody does this, but it's possible. <laughs> Right, and then the next step is um, now it's a string, and then you can run eval on a string. And again, yes, unless you're doing particular applications, you would almost never do this because of the risk of running eval, which executes code mm-hmm. on a string, yes. which is very often not a safe thing to do. Because, like, where does a string come from? Are you sure that? You know, you don't have to interpret the string basically. You yeah, just, yeah, exactly, <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly. But for this particular kata, the, do. the yeah. only way that you get under the character limit is you join the array using a template literal and a plus. Then you evaluate that string, and that I has the same very effect. specific use case. Exactly, but when you get into the higher level katas, right? That mm. is the type of thing that you start to see. Like yesterday, I did a Ruby 4Q kata. Oh. I think it's actually the first 4Q kata that I passed in Ruby, which okay. said, create 1,337 classes. <laughs> each class should have a unique name, and each class should have uh, an instance method. And um, each class should have a unique class method. Hello? 
Yeah, sorry. I think I, my, my internet just lagged out for a moment there, but I, I more or less got what you, you were saying. Yeah. A, again, very specific use cases. Oddly sort of, yeah. You know, Correct. I mean, I'm sure there is a learning point behind this, right? I mean, I think... Okay, so here's the... <clears throat> Here's the difficulty, and I think this is part of the difficulty of learning anything, which is often you're restricted by what you think is possible. Sure. Mm. Right? Right. And when you know of something that the language can do, it makes you think about how to build things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the thing about katas is that they are just... They're solely for practice. In the right. same way, in the same way that you know, if you think about like people running marathons, it's solely it's solely for the training effect of running marathons. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. Like in modern life, you don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um. But it's good to know that you can, if you wanted, if you had to. Yeah. Fair right. Enough. So yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. So anyway, I, I mentioned all of that, but really the main <laughs> point that I wanted to get to was actually started talking about this because of computational power, right? Yes. Um, from like 5Q and up, you start seeing problems where um, they have an optimization tag or a performance oh. tag, I think, that they attach okay. to katas. And why that is, is Code Wars has a five-second limit. Your code cannot take more than five seconds to execute all of the tests. Oh, wow. Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. Huh. And there are some katas that are designed um, in such a way that the naive solution is very slow. Yes. Right. Okay. And so like a yep. 6Q or lower can solve them, but they will not be able to pass them in five seconds. Mm. Yep. Uh, and in, I mean, I think those uh-huh. are some of the most, I find them some of the most difficult because yep. often the answer involves some kind of number theory or some yes. kind of discrete math or some kind of bitwise operation that, yes, I mean, yes, I exactly. Mean, so, okay, so computational power is, I mean, relating this to, to computational biology, obviously, you know, uh, I mean, when you're first developing a software, that's going to be least of your concerns. You just want to get yes. something that works. Yeah, exactly. If you're writing your, I mean, usually a lot of this software isn't developed as general use software. It's developed because I have a problem mm-hmm. that I'm trying to fix that yep. existing software doesn't doesn't you know cover, and so I write my own program, and it says, ah, maybe maybe it's just what I'll publish it, All right? Or you know, publish as part of the paper because that's part of scientific reporting requirements as well. Yep. Right. And then, yeah, I guess, you know, down the line, people start thinking about, okay, speed optimization. And speed optimization is important because it, you know, it does govern what software does get used and what doesn't get used. Yeah. Right. Um, this is why, you know, everyone chafes when we say, oh, maybe you should run this as a Bayesian MCMC. Or, uh, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, for those who don't understand, a Bayesian MCMC is a, what's it called? Uh, uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo uh, oh method. God. Okay. Right. So basically what the Markov chain Monte Carlo does is, is very simple. Now, if I have a set of empirical data and mm-hmm. I'm trying to fit parameters to this data, mm-hmm. right? 
what a Markov chain Monte Carlo does is that it basically samples across parameter space, right? For multiple okay. iterations. And the more iterations you run, the closer you will get to the true uh, empirical parameters, right, right. parameter values. The problem is that because you're sampling across the whole of parameter space, it takes forever to run. Right. Right. So if I run an MCMC for like five runs, uh, okay, it takes, you know, say five minutes, one minute per run, but you're not going to get very accurate parameter estimates. Right. Alternatively, I could run it for a million runs. It'll take a million minutes and I'll get very, very accurate parameter estimates, but it's going to take a million minutes. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a very nice animation that shows you what a Monte Carlo MCMC uh, looks like. Hang on. Uh, let, me, let me pull up. Okay. This is really, really I mean, cool. if you can put that into the show notes before yep. the end of the show, then they will make it into the show notes. Yes. So this is something that uh, is a new rule that I have decided as of episode 16. Well, episode 16 is kind of a gone case for it, but yeah. Because we are both so busy, <laughs> nobody has time yes. to listen back and do proper show notes. Nope. So whatever is in the show notes at the end of the episode, that's what is going to get published. <laughs> exactly. So you might hear more typing as we desperately try and find the relevant uh, website. Um, yeah. Yes. And you might okay. get like less detailed background information. Yeah. But the, the trade-off, right? And um, life is full of trade-offs. <laughs> um, the trade-off is... I feel I've seen this video before. Okay. But the trade-off is you actually get the episodes released on time. <laughs> Instead of being <laughs> like, when am I going to find like two hours to sit down and like do these things up properly? I don't have two hours yep. anywhere in my week. I, so, I wish I had two hours. I mean, that two hours taken to do something is two hours away from uh, of sleep that's lost. Effectively, but I can't even speak now. Effectively, yeah. yes. Yeah, sleep is such um, a precious commodity these, these days. I, yeah. I kid you not, it's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. I've seen this before, although I've forgotten what it contains. But I I remember well, it's this. about Monte Carlo's. It's about how you yeah. arrive at accurate parameter estimates. Yeah. Uh, through repeated sampling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So I was going to say something and then it just like disappeared from my brain. So oh, back to the point. So MCMCs take forever uh -huh. to run. And so because yeah. of that, you know, while there are many softwares out there that, you know, so, uh, sort of analysis packages out there that uh, sort of look at biological problems using an MCMC method, we hate running those things because it just takes, you know, it, I mean, I've had people who, 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 who ran like, you know, who've run uh, uh, MCMC runs for like six months. <laughs> just I mean half a year right, of real time I, not com yeah I, I mean I was going to say the thing is um, with all of these things right especially with uh, MCMC now I mean I'm looking at the video and I remember mm. watching this uh, mm. although I don't remember the mechanics of how you actually perform such a thing but the thing is you get diminishing returns relatively quickly right this is like a classic kind of Pareto principle situation where after 20% of the runtime you're 80% there how close do you want to get to 100%? Okay, no, fair depends. enough. So it depends. Fair because enough. if your chains don't converge, basically you see that, that, that plot right. behind, that's yeah. the sort of the convergence. If right. your sampler doesn't converge at a particular value, then that run is wasted. Right, that's... Okay, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Mm. So if all your yeah. runs don't converge at any particular value, that means you haven't run it for long enough. Right. 
Yeah. Um, clearly, my phone was not on silent. Let me put it on oh, silent. Okay, anyway. So, the, I uh, that's that's true. But I think here's it's it's a weird thing to kind of say, right? But the thing is, computing is actually full of trade offs. You yes. think that computers, in a sense, are like immune to this kind of thing, but the fact is, whatever implementation that you make has some kind of um, downside. So, the um, I was watching the updated lectures from CS50, mm-hmm. um, which we've talked about before at length. But basically, for 2021, they had a new version of CS50 because they oh, well, re-recorded... Basically, they recorded the lectures from, I think, fall 2020. And um, they published them as CS20... Uh, a CS20, CS50 2021, basically. So they keep okay. it updated pretty much. Nice. So um, one of the things that they talked about in CS50 when I did the when I did the course, right, is they start with C, right? And C is a fairly low-level language, high yes. relative to like assembly and stuff, but it's relatively low-level compared to most languages that people work in today. Then... They spend like four, five, six weeks on C. Then I think it's five weeks on C. Then they move to Python. Mm. So the five weeks that you spend on C, they involve doing things like, okay, how do we build a string out of characters, um, you know, pointers in a string, uh, memory allocation. Like what happens when you need to allocate memory for an array of, uh, you know, for a data structure of an undefined size. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, because in C, if I remember correctly, you can't just create an array without knowing what size it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Right? So the way that you would do that, if you didn't know how, how much memory you were going to end up needing, was you need to you needed to allocate the memory and then you fill it up. And then right. when you're done, you free up the memory. And if you don't, then you have a memory leak. Um, you can also excess memory that doesn't belong to the function, then you get a segmentation fault. Yes. <laughs> um, all that Which kind of stuff. a common error that you encounter when you're running software that you didn't write. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you spend all of that time dealing with all of these like low-level things. Foundational. Then, yeah. Foundational, yeah. Um, then suddenly in the middle of the course... You know, the instructor says, hey, by the way, from now on, we'll be using Python and JavaScript and similar high-level languages. And Mm -hmm. all that stuff that you just did the last few weeks in C that took you hours and hours and hours is like two lines in Python. Yeah. Right? And... um, one of my course mates from, from my bootcamp, she, she did CS50X. And for her, right, this was... She found this infuriating. A betrayal. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like top 10 anime betrayals. Like, why did you keep this information from me? Why have I been agonizing over, like, you know, memory allocation, like, these past few weeks? And yeah. But the thing is, there's always a trade-off, right? Yeah. So why wouldn't what's the benefit of writing in C versus writing in Python? And the benefit is when you're at a low level, you can directly 
manipulate the memory in such a way that it's very efficient for your purposes. Yes. Because once you go up a higher level of abstraction, right, you have to write something more general purpose and it's not ever going to be as efficient as it could be. It's the same yeah. thing as with any kind of like any kind of abstraction, right? Like is the is the map abstraction problem of yeah. I, I need to represent this information in some way to make it more useful, but as I do that I lose detail. Yes. Yeah. Right? It's 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 a just a version of that same problem. But See, then the it, problem Yeah. Sorry, but the question is which resource is more valuable? Mm. Compute time or programmer time? <laughs> right? So yep. you make that's an easy trade off to make now. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but that's then true. but then you end up seeing like okay, there are a lot of other there are a lot of other potential trade offs that you can see. So in CS fifty twenty twenty one, the new version, they um had a quiz at the end. So I only watched the material that was new. Right, but they had like a class quiz at the end, um, where the Kahoot style, right? There's a question displayed, and then you have like twenty seconds to key in your answer, and then at the end, some anonymous person, because there are like seven hundred people in the class, um, gets <laughs> like the the prize, right? Or the top score right. for answering all the questions, the best. So one of the question, one of the questions was, what's the most efficient? Um, what's the fastest algorithm? Oh, no, not algorithm. What's the fastest data structure to store and retrieve words in a dictionary? Not not like a Python dictionary, but like a dictionary, like an index of words. Mm-hmm. Right? And the answer is a try. Try, T-R-I-E. Okay. Where the thing is, um, I, okay, I think efficient is not the word, right? The thing about a dictionary is that it's going to have thousands, hundreds of thousands of words. And if you think about like a binary search, for example, the larger your corpus, mm-hmm. the longer the search will take. Yes. Right? It's unavoidable. It's going to increase by... Uh, it's. I think that's log n time, but whatever. But then... Um, yeah, because I don't have it at, a, at my fingertips. But um, with a try the data structure is different. So I'm not going to try and describe the data structure like in words over a podcast, but it is restricted or or rather it runs in um, the the maximum. Okay. The the determining factor of how fast it runs is how long the word is. Mm -hmm. And so it's very fast for something that is going to behave like a dictionary where you have a word and you need to retrieve the corresponding um, information based on using the a, a word as a key. Um, and then the question is, okay, if a try is so good, why, does, why isn't everything built as a try? Mm-hmm. The answer is, it takes up massive amounts of memory. Right, okay. Because yes. you have to load the entire thing into memory before you can... Yeah. Before you get these results, right? Mm-hmm. And um, linear time, effectively. Is it linear time? I think it's linear time, yeah. So, the 
the thing is, for most people, right, who aren't working in some fairly, I don't want to say esoteric, because it's not necessarily esoteric, but once you leave the broad middle of programming and you start getting into somewhat more specialized applications, you have to decide what set of trade-offs you're willing to accept. Yes. Right? I mean, this is an interesting point to make. So I was, uh, I think, well, I can't remember if this was last week or two weeks ago. Uh, I did a, uh, a course. It's a, it's a very beginner course, uh, but it, it's a good refresher for me on uh, phylogenetics. Okay. Which is, how do you build trees? Right. Uh, you know, okay. if I have a matrix of characteristics, whether it's genetic or morphological, you know, whatever, just measurements of, say, leg length or whatever, how do I turn this matrix of, effectively distances, right? Pairwise distances into okay. a tree topology. Okay. Right. And so it's, you know, if imagine say I have two individuals, A and B, there's only one tree I can build. A bifurcates from B. Right. Yep. Okay. Now, when I get into three uh, individuals, it becomes a bit more complex. I can build three different topologies. Mm, right, right. Okay. There's only one topology, but three different orderings of the of the of the terminal nodes. A separates from yep. B, and then C is sister, or any kind of permutation of that. Right. Then once yep. you get into four, five, six individuals, things get exponentially more complicated. Yeah. So when I have say okay, fifty individuals that I'm trying to build a tree for, and okay. I have a fifty by fifty matrix of you know, of, of characters. I could even have a 50 by 50 matrix times a thousand, right? For a thousand right. different characters. Okay. How do I take in all this data and find the most effective tree, the most likely tree? Right. Topology, right? And so the, this tough. is a problem yeah. that, this is a problem that many of the early computational phylogeneticists encountered, right? The first people said, I'll just use, you know, just average out across all the, all, all the, um, all the matrices and then just use uh, pairwise distances. That's right. the easiest, right? It's like, okay. you know, A is most diff no, A is most similar to B, so A is similar to B, and so on and so forth, right? You build that kind of pairwise bifurcation. Okay, yeah. Now, that is easy, but it you lose a lot of the resolution of the data, right? You're not able yep. to do, yep. do things like branch lengths, which is, you know, um, number of mutations required to get from A to B. Right. Right? Now, when you want... And the other way is to do it, parsimony, uh, to do it by parsimony, so this is this cuts to the one of the sort of the, the the deep debates within phylogenetics, which is still partially unresolved. Which is, do we use a parsimony-based method or a likelihood-based method? Hmm. So a parsimony-based method yeah. for tree construction is I find the tree that requires the least number of novel uh, branch points, right? In order to explain okay. the data. Okay. Okay. Whereas a likelihood-based method, you know, you take each character and then you run a maximum likelihood algorithm uh, uh, computation there's a computation on it right yep right and so you can imagine that the likelihood based method uh, is probably better but it's also yeah. really computationally intensive because yeah. you have to compute the likelihood on every single possible tree permutation yeah and for increased numbers of terminal nodes your complexity goes up by an order of magnitude Yes. Right. So, uh, obviously, you know, parsimony won out for a long time up until the eight, uh, up until the eighties. I think that, that was actually yeah. the, 
there was a uh, I think I sent this to you over over Facebook, but um, this was the that long one hour long chat with Joe Felsenstein, who's still around. Joe Felsenstein is like the father of computational phylogenetics. He's the guy okay. that uh, e- effectively wrote the first one of the first few programs that made likelihood computations of trees computationally tractable. Interesting. Okay. Right. And basically how you do this is this. And this is similar to what I talked about with the MCMC earlier, which is that you've got this huge parameter space. Think of it as a a map, a landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a flat landscape because there will be localized optima. There'll be certain trees, uh, tree topologies Mm -hmm. that are better uh, from a statistical perspective than others. Right. Right. And so what you need to do, right. I mean, ideally what you want to do is to explore the entire landscape, right all across the entire landscape and then you'll find the the highest peak and that's your best tree okay right right that's not possible unless you have infinite computational hours so what you do instead is that you drop random points across the landscape and then you use some uh uh, optimum searching algorithm so it's okay i computed a tree Mm -hmm. i compute a tree for here now i'll vary the parameters a bit does it improve my likelihood or decrease my likelihood right right and your your sort of your parameter search algorithm. One way of doing it is okay. I'll always move towards a tree that has a higher likelihood. Okay. Yes, but the right. problem with that yeah. is that you get trapped at local optima. Yep. Right. Yep. If you keep climbing the hill and you don't have a method for going down the hill, you're going to be stuck yep. at that small hill forever. Correct. And miss the big mountain behind yep. it. Yeah. Right. So there's this new software that just came out called IQ Tree that basically. Uh, incorporates the sort of the, the the hill hill climbing and hill descending alg- uh, uh, components into its algorithm. So it'll do a climb mm-hmm. and a decline, a climb and a decline. And if you've reached the true optimum, right, repeated iterations of climb and decline should not change your optimum state by okay. significant amounts. And so that's basically you know how. In, in in the present day, at least, uh, for 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 likelihood based approaches to to, to tree inference, um, you know there is that trade off between uh, accuracy, right, or finding the best tree and speed. Yeah. Because yeah. if you really want to explore the entire topological landscape, be my guest, you know, you just never publish anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean. <sighs> Optimization has its own kind of trade-off, right? Yeah. There is this thing that there is this thing that we often um, say to students um, because with as with any kind of class, right? You you get in you get students who come in at varying levels, hmm. and there are often students who come in at a fairly advanced level, yeah. who when they first start um, with Ruby. Right, they want to optimize everything from the outset. Yes. Yeah. Right, where you 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 know you are you are only you only have the tools to do it with the naive way because you are just starting out with the language, right? But yeah. you conceptually know that this is inefficient, yes. and you want to do it better, right? And so instead of sitting down and knocking out the naive algorithm that works but is a bit slow right they're like oh but do I have to should I use a a hash instead of an array for this data structure should I is there a faster algorithm for this should I implement my own should I implement my own search or sort instead of using the native one that kind of thing right (sighs) 
And the answer for that is, like, when you're in a real production environment, um, you your priority is to get something that works for the customer base that you have. Yes. And if you don't have, if you have 1,000 customers, it is cheaper and faster for everybody involved to use something slightly less efficient. Yeah. But that doesn't cost you, the programmer, hours and hours and hours of work. Yeah. Right? When you have 1 million, 10 million, 100 million customers, <laughs> and that inefficiency is multiplied by 100 million, then yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, invest the time to optimize that that solution because that what that you know few milliseconds or half a second optimization is now being multiplied by a massive number and you're not just saving the time of all these people you're probably also saving money on the computation that you are buying from like Amazon or Microsoft or Google yep I mean what the enemy of good is perfect right is that the the yeah 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 Yeah, exactly Mm. yeah and so the mentality is usually it's built for whatever customer base that you have first, right? You can worry about optimization later, but if you never push what you already have, then nobody gets the productivity gains from using that thing that you just built. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> that was a long segue. Uh, I don't know what we were talking. I mean, I don't I have- know what what the end goal of that conversation was, but it was fun. It, it was fun, right? And building trees is, is, yeah. is interesting. I actually skipped, well, I missed the, the second half of that course because I was, okay. uh, it was stupid of me. I scheduled for that day, literally back to back to back. Like, you know, the the bubbles on my calendar were flush against each other um, uh, things. And so uh, obviously one thing overran, right? I had to do some, I had to uh-huh. do an interview with the Straits Times in Clementi Forest of all places. And so it overran and I got, got into the, got into a Starbucks, set up the internet and everything. Then I, for some reason for myself, locked out of the Zoom workshop. So uh, I need okay. to go, it's thankfully recorded. I need to actually find time to sit down and listen to it. But the second half was looking at Bayesian approaches towards uh, tree inference, which I'm actually very interested in, but didn't have time to listen to. Which is sort of the third method. Parsimony, likelihood, and then our Bayesian approaches. Great. <laughs> yeah. Where I think it's faster. <laughs> not, no, actually, no. It's not necessarily faster, but it's, it, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with Bayesian statistics, but you define a prior. Only conceptually, but yes. Ah, okay. So, I mean, conceptually also, you know, this is my, my level of familiarity with it. But for tree inference, right, you either, okay, I take, you know, 50 individuals and I find every possible tree. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that could potentially be inferred from these 50 individuals, which is yep. annoying. Or you say, okay, I'll define a prior. Right? I say right. that I think the tree looks like, it, I think the true tree looks like this. And then you give the program a starting point. You compute mm-hmm. the, the, the prior probability. And then you compare the prior against the posterior, which is the inferred tree. And then you compute the posterior probability given the prior. Yep. Yeah, that's more or less it. And, you know, you find the okay. tree with the best posterior probability. Right. Yeah, yeah. you know. I mean, <laughs> I, I have no further comments on trees. Fair enough. No, I mean, um, trees, are, I, trees are messed up, right? It, it's a really terrible way of organizing data. 
but because this is how evolution happens, we have to figure yeah. out a way to make it work. <laughs> I mean, linguists linguists use um, trees for all sorts of things. So, um, when it comes to phonology, it has trees. Yeah. Um, would I say phonetics has trees? I mean, not, not phonetics, phonology. Well, um, linguists will use trees, right, to represent the breakdown of a of a not a phoneme, no, to to represent like you, okay, you have a sentence, right, and then you have um, you trans you transcribe the sentence into IPA, mm-hmm. then for each syllable, right. What typically happens is that the the phonetician will break it down into um, the onset, the rhyme, and the coda. Yeah, and that's represented as a tree. Yes. Right. The other place yeah. where you you see, I mean, when when our TA was you know when I was in undergrad and our TA was teaching us how to do this, he commented like, um, "This is represented as a tree because if a linguist doesn't ro- draw a tree for a day, he will die." So, but when you frequently see this is syntax trees, obviously. Right, yes. Um, yeah, but I don't know enough about that to comment uh, Fair enough. intelligently about that. I just will always remember the TA's comments that if a linguist doesn't draw a tree for a day, he will die. So, <laughs> but well, I mean, we have been right? talking like, about trees this whole mm-hmm. time. The tree, T-R-I-E as well as a digital tree. Oh, fair, fair. Uh, okay. I think is it a tree or a try? Try. I have no idea. Try. I think it's a try actually. A try. Whoops. Okay. Did I say tree? Okay, it's a no, try. No, you said try. try. Yeah, try. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But this conversation so, has been all about trees. <laughs> yes. So, um, I mean, the uh, they are useful though. Yeah. But it's just I mean, really an awful is a tree. way. It, it is an awful way of representing data, and it's an awful way of I, manipulating data as well. I think the thing is, when you are, f- from the point of view, okay, if you can do it graphically, mm. it's, the, where, where trees really shine is if you can draw them, right? Yes. If you have to represent them in code, it's a pain. I, I find like trees, linked lists, that kind of thing, I find mm. them very hard to manipulate because the mental model that you have in your head is visual, Yes. Right, but you correct. have to represent them purely in terms of numbers, and that is that is a pain in the butt. Well, I mean, this is uh, you know representationally speaking. So this is again, I'm back to Joe Felsenstein, who the guy who I mm-hmm. I talked about, who you know pioneered this. By the way, I can't find that. I can't find that um, video link. So if you want it in the show notes, you have to put it there yourself. Yes, it's already in the show notes. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. So he oh, wrote this it. program yep. called Philip. And he also came uh-huh. up with what we call the Newick format. The Newick format is a is basically how you represent a tree in a text string. Okay. Right. A, a, well, strictly oh not just God. any okay, tree, but just... a bifurcating phylogenetic tree. So every and node. Just thinking about that is scary. But go on. <laughs> no, it's actually not that challenging. It's something you learn in undergrad. Okay. Uh, in undergrad okay, biology. Okay. That's good. Which is that, right? Okay, so uh, a bifurcating phylogenetic tree, every node bifurcates into two daughter nodes mm-hmm, or daughter yeah. branches. And each daughter branch yeah. then bifurcates and so on until you reach the tip. Mm-hmm. Right? And so yeah. he, basically he just you know designed it such that use parentheses to, 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 to define your, 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 your node points. 
Right, so okay. within the overall parenthesis is your total tree. Okay, and then you have, yeah. say, for example, B, comma, A, that's B branch with A. Mm-hmm. And okay. so on and so forth, yeah. So that, that's basically just using parentheses and commas. And it's been extended in a variety of ways to include branch lengths as well. So, right, because some branches are longer than others because there's more mutations of that branch. And so on right. and so forth. Right. Yeah, so so the, the Newick format is how, as biologists at least, we represent tree topologies, right, which are not strings, but as a single uh-huh. string line. I realized like, this whole time that you've been thinking of trees from the from the branches to the root, basically, because what you see is you see yes. the nodes, right? And you're trying <laughs> to find the root. This whole time, I've been thinking of a tree the other way around, where you start from <laughs> one node and you, you go out. Well, because that's how, that's how you would build it. I mean, if you're starting from scratch and you're building hmm. it in code, that's how you would build it. Yeah. Well, no, that that is fair. Uh, that is a very good yeah. point, actually. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, point. because, I mean, as a biologist, you only see the nodes. You're trying yeah. to find the... No, you see, those, the, you see the tips. Yeah. The nodes are yes, the, yes, the, yes. The, the... Yeah, you see the tips or the, the, the leaves. The intermediate points, yeah. And then yeah. you work your way towards the root. You're right. Yeah. Well, no, you work your way to... Uh, okay. In, in, <laughs> in phylogenetics, the, the term root actually has a very specific meaning. Uh, because... Okay. Uh, this affects how you represent the topology of the tree, right? So okay. if I have, uh, this is hard to describe over <laughs> without without a visual aid. But if um, <laughs> basically where I place the root of my tree determines okay. how the final tree looks like, right? Imagine, uh, okay, imagine elaborate. Okay. you have a you have a huge ass tree like fifty different nodes, okay, uh-huh. and the topology is really 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 complex. Now, mm-hmm. which one is my, uh, what is my outgroup in this tree? Okay. Right. And where you just, define just the to be root. clear, what do you mean by outgroup? The outgroup is what polarizes the tree. Right. That so you did uh, not explain. No, much. this is really hard to describe. I, I, this needs visuals, unfortunately. Um, okay. Let's, let's leave this for a different discussion. But essentially, okay. where you put your root matters in a tree. Right. And right. because it, 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 it basically, okay, you know, if I point at any one point in the tree and I say rotate or pivot the entire tree uh-huh. by this point, it will completely change the shape of the tree. Okay. I kind of, I, I can vaguely visualize what you mean because the thing is with, with nodes, right? We, I mean, we kind of like to think of, we kind of like to think of, um, I, okay. If you think of the, 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 I, the tips or leaves, right? Mm-hmm. As being the, like there's a very clear evolutionary path from the root to the tip, yeah. then it it does kind of make sense to think of them as being like this is a, a strict tree, so to speak. Yeah. Like each uh, kind of like git um, <laughs> branches, I guess. Yes, yes. Right, I guess. like every comet has one or more, one or two parents, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, you can look at this node and say, okay, where is the parent? Mm-hmm. There. Where is that parent? There. Where is the parent? Okay, two parents. There and there. Right? Um, but when you are dealing with something like like species, right? And you're trying to figure out where is the, where is the starting point? Um, the reality is there is sufficient variation that you might get multiple answers depending on where you want to where you want to pick like if i assume that 
this was the starting point, what does it look like? Versus if I assume that is a starting point, what does the tree look like now? Did Something I get that right? Something like that. I, I, it's, okay. uh, this is really hard to describe. I'm, I'm putting a link... Uh, for okay. interested readers want to delve into the into the into the nitty gritty because tree, like I said, trees are a painful way of representing information. Cabbages of doom dot blogspot dot com. Yes, I mean don't. Uh, it, it's a good. It's a. <laughs> it's a good blog post. Okay. 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 <laughs> And it says in the first line, it is clear that one of the things that causes a surprising amount of confusion is rooting the tree. Is rooting the tree. <laughs> rooting the tree. Yep. What a term, rooting the tree. Okay. Welcome to phylogenetics. We have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the word phylogenetics by itself is very interesting. <laughs> Literally, tree genetics. Yes. Yeah. It's um yeah I mean phylogeny right or the the, or the the origin of the tree I guess yeah or when Wait, the tree what do you comes. mean by no I mean oh, phylogeny right, right, right. phylogeny no, no, yeah 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 because so, I I mean I just think of like genetics but yeah gen no, has that has that so I mean phylogenetics is actually a portmanteau it's it's not you know it, it's yeah. it's a portmanteau between phylogeny and genetics yes hmm, so yeah. yeah but I mean genetics the the origin of that is. Uh, I actually once attempted to do a video on this, but it's it's very difficult to to do it properly because um, the word um, genetics, right, that comes from um, I can't remember what the proto Indo European what the proto Indo European um, original uh, mm. the root, right? I can't, <laughs> I can't remember what oh, what it was, um, but the word evolved into like there are so many modern english words that can be traced back to it so genetics obviously is one but that's in a sense a a 19th century invention because when genes were discovered they needed a a word for it right and they Mm -hmm. settled on gene but the word itself has a much longer history so if you think about genesis yes correct genesis is like the start right yeah um and then if you think about like um Genteel. Mm, oh. Right. Yeah. Right. Because if you are from, if you're genteel, you are well-bred. Yes. Right. Um, I think king is also a cognate, actually. Is that right? Could be wrong about that. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I can't remember the details. I remember like doing a good amount of research into this. There's, there's a lot of stuff that ultimately is connected if you go back to the root, mm-hmm. the root word in Proto-Indo-European, and then you work back down, um, you see so many different versions of it. Let you should represent it in a tree form. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you can. I just type in genetics into Wikipedia. That was, that was a terrible idea. What's nope, the yeah. word that I'm looking for? Wiktionary. <laughs> um, you just have to live with my... Clicky keyboard. Mechanic. I, I feel like getting one as well, but now that my Mac, MacBook Pro has been fixed, the keyboard feels better. I mean, it depends on what you want from a keyboard. Mm. Um, it comes from, okay, Proto-Germanic. What's the Proto-Indo-European version of this? So the Proto-Germanic version of King is Kuningas. Kuningas. And then Kunya is the root. Um, yeah, it's... Okay, so... It's a reconstructed word, and I'm gonna put this into I'm gonna put this into um, the show notes. 
and I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's G-E-N-H, and this in in Proto-Indo-European linguistics, they write H1 because there are, I think there is more than one possible H sound. Right. Weird oh, as that shit. sounds. Yeah. So they've reconstructed it back to like, I think H1, H2, and H3, I want to say. Okay. Um, But they don't know what those sounds actually are. They oh, just know wow. that they had to have that sound at some point. Yeah. And so... It's Gin, I guess. Okay. Uh, but who knows, right? Because we don't know how it was pronounced. We, we can guess, but I think it's Gin. And so if you look at all the different languages, um, all the Indo-European languages that have some version of this word, which definitely they did because this is a word that you're going to need. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. Pretty shoot. much in any language. Yeah. And you can kind of see like Sanskrit, Janati has has um, descendants, then all these words with, all these languages where there is no Wikipedia entry for, because, yeah. because, right? And then, like, if I look at Celtic, for example, Ganyator, mm-hmm. uh, Ganyator, and then it's like, um, yeah, I mean, you see it in oh, Irish, Jin. That's right. <laughs> uh, Bloody hell, this is a fin, cool word. Hin, yeah. So it's, I need I to it's work this into a future in, lecture at some point. Yeah, in, in Irish. <laughs> and then, yeah, then you have all sorts of, I w- I'm going to say permutations of the word. It's not permutations, but um, I, I guess the simpler non-linguistic word would be like variations on it, right? Modifications with descent. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> but... Um, no, sorry, but yeah, descent when, and modification, but yeah. It's it's like you have a, a a root, and then you can nominalize it and make it a noun. Yep. You can make it a verb, right? You can make it an adjective, adverb. Then when you once you have a noun, you can prefix it, suffix it, to you know negate it, and all that all that kind of stuff. So there are there are lots of um, versions. Uh, interestingly, right? If you look on the Wikipedia uh, the dictionary page, you get um, genius. Yes, I saw. I was very right? very Which, puzzled by that. Yeah. Yeah, but if you look at the original meaning of genius, right, the deity or guardian spirit of a person mm. or a place, right. and then um, yeah, and then the inborn nature or innate character. So yeah, it's it's a really fascinating word because especially for English, because English draws from this word gin, right? Mm. I'm a, I, I don't know how it's pronounced, okay, but it draws from this word from multiple through multiple branches so to speak yes <laughs> right because you get king from the germanic side yeah then you get um anything that begins with gen right from the uh okay that's not true i was going to say anything that comes from gen from the from the latin side but some of it comes back to greek yes like genesis right. is greek yeah right i think the Romans may have gotten it from from the Greeks, but I'm not sure about that. Completely, completely not sure. So don't, don't quote, quote me on that at all. Side, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, then yeah, yeah. you also get, some of it doesn't come into English directly from Latin. Mm-hmm. Some of it comes in from Old French <laughs> as well. Yeah, I actually need to go and see if I can dig up that previous... Um, attempt wow. that I made but let's see 
I mean, basically, um, the only language that doesn't draw on this route is emoji. <laughs> That's complicated. <laughs> oh shit! Did, um, I, did I open another can of worms? I was just joking. I was joking. Please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on it depends on what you mean by draw from this root, right? <laughs> Fair. Is emoji a language? Um, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> I mean, my view on it is no. No, this all syntax, right? Uh, no. Unless, no, depending on who you ask, shit. It, but it really depends on who, on who you ask. Yeah. I think um, um, semioticians, okay, yes. right, people who are in semiotics, yeah. they have more to say about emoji as a language. Okay, yeah. Just because that's the stage that emoji is at. Yes. So semioticians, semantics, mm-hmm. then after that point, then you get into syntax. Yeah. And... <laughs> At the point where you have syntax, right, that's where um, a particular order of mm-hmm. emoji, right? Yeah, of pictograms. Um, produces, yeah, yeah, produces a reliable um, meaning. Replicable, or yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think we are quite there yet. No. So it's a proto-language. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> well, proto-language has its own meaning, so... Yep, yep, I knew I was opening that kind yeah. of worms there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, a proto-language is a language. It's just a language that we know must have existed, but right. yep. we haven't attested. Yeah, fair. Yep. Which I guess you can also describe emoji, <laughs> given the generation gap. Uh, we know yeah, it exists out there somewhere. We know that some some civilization of young people use it, but we don't actually... <laughs> okay, I actually found the video uh, not the video sorry I found I made um, like a presentation in Prezi okay Prezi god Prezi is such an it? old platform Prezi. I used it as an undergrad yeah yeah I hated it no so, my prof hated it and so I never used it ever again right I mean I think it is it has its users mm. for sure um, but okay I, I found it and I see if I can like can I make it public or something? Yeah, because it's extremely extremely um, detailed. <laughs> I right. have to be honest, put in a lot of research into it for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll see if I can like make it public and then put it in the show notes. Well, we're coming up to the hour already, but the other thing is go yeah. back to listen to the, I mean, I, I recommended this to you a long time ago, but I, you know, for any listeners, go and listen to the conversation with Joe Felsenstein because it, it doesn't just deal with trees, but it also deals with how computers have advanced to the present day. You know, not just compu- computational power, but storage technology as well. Um, right. Which right. is really, really cool because, you know, when he wrote Philip, I think this was in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, and we didn't have thumb drives. We didn't have not even B drives then, right? It was like you had to what send magnetic a tape. B drive, a, a floppy, the the five and three. Oh oh oh, oh 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 Yeah, that's. I B think drive. of them as like A A drive. Well, a is three and a, three and a quarter inch three and a floppies. Half. Three and a half inch floppies. Yeah, uh, three and a three and a three and a quarter. No, three and a half. Three, correct. Yeah. Three and a half. Yeah. Gosh, that's an yep. age ago. But yeah, so the true floppies. I think mean, they're not even. They weren't even around in the eighties, right? Um. <laughs> so basically, he uh, what what Joe Fassenstein did was they that. Were... Uh, okay. Well, actually, I have no idea. I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. So he said that you know, in when he was distributing the software, 
he would say uh-huh. that he would ask anyone who wanted the software to send over a blank magnetic tape. And then he would that send it is back. Epic. Yeah, because he says that he can't afford to be spending a fortune on number one, postage, and number two, magnetic tapes to distribute his software. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so... I'm looking and then at... It was like, uh, okay, the other so... Thing was, is there's... Mm-hmm. No, you were saying? I'm, I'm looking at floppy disks. Yes. And um, five and a quarter inch was... So the floppy, floppy, right? Yes. The eight-inch floppy disk was um, oh, late nineteen sixties. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but I guess maybe not common. Uh, yeah, and the five and a quarter-inch floppy was introduced in um, nineteen seventy-six. Wow, jeez, okay. Yeah. So yep. the other thing also, I think, was about postage. If you, oh god, I cannot remember. Um, he he mentions in 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 that conversation, but something about if you posted a tape that had data on it you might have to incur uh-huh. extra charges. What? Yeah, or something like that. It's something about USPS and postage and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, listen to the conversation. It's really, really, really cool because this guy has been there since the beginning of computational phylogenetics. Um, he's I mean, uh, he's still around. His, his PhD advisor is still around as well, uh, Richard Lewinton. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, he's like, he's, he's considered one of the gods of, of, of phylogenetics. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, as you know, a throwaway comment that really just took me aback was that uh, he was initially working on a completely different topic for his PhD on population genetics. Okay. Right? And so he mentions it in a really offhand comment, which <laughs> just completely threw me off. It's like, oh, you know, um, my, pop gen- my population genetics project had failed. So Dick Lewinton said, why don't you just write up that tree stuff you're working on as a side project? And that's what he's become really famous for. <laughs> okay. That's Interesting. a PhD for you. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we might as well end here. Yes. It was an interesting talk. It's, it's a good ending. Yeah. Yes. On trees. It's, it's really all about trees. In the very abstract sense. Right. We haven't even talked about real yeah. trees, which is my actual area of expertise. But <laughs> Real trees? Okay. Well, not even real trees, but, you know, things that live on trees. <laughs> <laughs> all right, whatever. Okay, so um, this episode of Monkey Mine can be found at monkeymine.xyz slash 017. Uh, we actually have a good amount of show notes, which we did during the show. If you hear the, ki- the clicky-clacky the clacky and the mouse clicks. Yep. Yep. And so with any luck, this will actually be published on time. <laughs> uh, and uh, no guarantees about when we'll record again, but I, uh, you know how it is. <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>